This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. A little later in the hour, the story of mutant cloned crayfish and a game of poison or venom. Can you tell the difference? Great stuff coming up. But first, next week, February 14th, chocolate season, right? Kicks into high gear. And you know chocolate is big business. Annual sales worldwide on the order of $100 billion. That is a lot of bonbons. In an effort to make you savor that cacao flavor just a little bit more, we wanted to revisit one of our favorite subjects, the unsung heroes of the chocolate industry, the insects, the insects that make it all possible. Joining us to tell that tale are Stacy Philpott, professor and Heller chair in agroecology, UC Santa Cruz. Welcome to Science Friday. It's great to be here. Nice to have you. Samantha J. Forbes, PhD candidate in agriculture and environment at James Cook University in Cairns, Australia. Did I say that right? Samantha? Yeah, you did say that, right? I <laughs> get my, Austra- my Australian accent. Forget it. Um, <laughs> and it would give our listeners a chance to call in our number, 844-724-8255. You can also tweet us at SciFry. And Samantha, let me begin with you. You spend a lot of time, I understand, staring at cacao flowers. Is that right? Yeah, I do. So Australia has a very small... Um, Uh, cacao industry um, and my research involves a lot of hours out in the field looking at these tiny cacao flowers and there's so many of them how how many are there (laughs) it it ranges it definitely uh, depends on the environment and whatever but it said that a cacao uh, tree in a season can produce more than 124,000 flowers and you're out there. Walk, walk, walk us through that and the popular, the popular, the pollination process. Describe the, the flies we're talking about and how they get the job done and why they're so necessary. Okay. Well, uh, the flies that I research are in a family um, of flies called the ceratopogonid midges. And these are known as your biting midges. So in there is also the, the annoying sand flies that are and uh, bite people. Um, but closely related to them is this genre um, of midges called the, for- the Forsopomaya. And they're a small fly that feed on um, floral resources and not on people. Um, and you can find them in the cocoa plantations and in just general sort of foresty environments. Um, and so what they do is, or how they conduct pollination services, is that they fly up to a cocoa flower and they look for the reward that they're trying to obtain. And while they're doing that, and searching around inside the flower, their backs are actually very hairy. They've got all these cute little hairs on their back. So while they're foraging inside the flower, they're collecting all of this pollen on their, on their thorax or on their back. And then when they fly into another flower and try and access the internal parts of the flower, all of the pollen that's on their back gets transferred to the receptive female part of the flower and they conduct pollination that way. Wow. And, and Dr. Philpott, I understand that you study the ants that uh, frequent coffee and cacao plantations like, like the army ants. Tell us, tell us about their role, please. So the army ants, really thinking about coffee and cacao agroforests, uh, they are important places for conservation of the army ants. So especially in cacao agroforests that have a high diversity and density of shade trees, that they support equal numbers of army ants as do the native forest habitats where the army ants come from. 
and there are more than 200 species of army ants that are found in Africa and Central and South America. They're carnivorous, meaning that they eat other insects, and they also can eat reptiles. And basically, when the army ant column starts moving through the habitat, it chases away almost every living thing in its pathway, right? So these colonies can have up to 20 million individuals mm. in an army ant colony. Um, when they're going through the agroforest, they kind of go up onto the cacao trees, onto the shade trees, and the trees almost turn black because they have so many ants on them. Now, are they doing something to help protect the plants themselves? Well, in this case, the, the army ants are perhaps doing something indirect that benefits the, the cacao plant. So they're eating a lot of insects. They could be eating some pest insects. They could be eating some beneficial insects as well. Um, but another thing that they do is that they attract ant-following birds. There's about 15 species of specialist army ant-following birds and then another 50 species that will occasionally follow the army ants. And those birds also provide pest control services by eating cacao pests. Wow, wow, wow. Samantha, one of the things you've studied is how to get more of these little midges to hang out there around the cacao trees and get more pollination going. Yeah, definitely. So um, where Stacy actually works, the cacao pla plantations look very different to a lot of the other cacao plantations plantations around the world. Cacao is becoming increasingly intensified in its management, which means taking a, a rainforest understory tree and putting it in full sun conditions in a rather orchard-like environment. Um, so the cacao plantations in Australia basically look like monocultured, very manicured um, orchards of only cacao trees with no shade trees, no understory, um, just cacao. And so if you think about um, the midge, which likes a shady, moist environment, I mean, it's a very small fly. It's, a, it's susceptible to sunlight. It needs organic matter to lay its eggs in and have its larvae develop. You can imagine in a very full sun manicured orchard style plantation that's not very conducive to these midges so what my research has actually looked at is if you manipulate the habitat within these plantations and put back a lot of this organic matter underneath the cacao trees does that serve as a breeding substrate for these midges and if so um, do you get an increased midge population and do you get increases in the pollination services that are happening and my study um, did actually find that we got a tenfold increase in the number of in a, a level of natural pollination that was happening when you actually increase this organic matter underneath the cacao trees. That's amazing. Is, is that something cacao farmers everywhere can do? Uh, actually, no. Um, we're very lucky here in Australia that we don't have a lot of the pest and pathogen problems um, yet <laughs> that other world, uh, that other cocoa regions experience. Like just for example, in Indonesia, I also do some cacao work over in Indonesia, and they have a big problem with a, a fungal pathogen called black pod, and that can take 90 to 100% of your pods that are on the tree, so it can it can take away your yield. Um, and so when you actually are having a lot of organic matter in the cacao fields, often this can pr can promote pests and fungal pathogens like black pod. Um, so lots of areas around the world um, have a practice of removing this substrate, removing this organic matter, so they're not promoting those fungal pathogens. Mm -hmm. uh, Stacey, is the, is the quality of the coffee or the cacao different depending on how it's grown, whether shade grown, so on? It can be. So for cacao in particular, 
the the yields of cacao can be higher uh, in some circumstances where there's a good level of shade within the the farm for coffee production there's a number of studies showing that the coffee quality can actually be much better if the uh, fruits are grown under the shade because the fruits themselves grow more slowly the fruits are denser and that means that the coffee beans are mm. heavier on a per volume basis they roast better less prone to burning and might have a better flavor at the end mm-hmm. and and if uh, Samantha if lots of different midgets visit one cacao flower could you in theory end up with a cacao pod that's full of different flavored beans from let's say different genetic lines yeah you definitely could uh each pollen grain is responsible like that's what turns into one cocoa bean is from one pollen grain so i guess if you have a number of midges going to one flower and transferring all the pollen or if you have one midge that visited a lot of pollen donor flowers and deposited them all on the one female flower yeah you could uh end up with a lot of genetic diversity inside one pod Is climate change, I'll ask both of you, is climate change affecting the future success of these forests, these cacao plants? Yeah, I'll say definitely that climate change could have a big impact because with changes in temperature and changes in in precipitation, that's going to dramatically affect where the cacao can be grown, um, how the pods will ripen, how the insect community changes. Uh, And there's some evidence that the smallholder growers of cacao, that they might actually be able to um, adapt uh, to some of the effects of climate change by adding more shade trees in their farms because that can buffer some of the, the climate extremes and the excessive rainfall, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Samantha, are you are you a fan of chocolate? You like? Uh, I am a fan of chocolate. Um, I always? never used to eat a lot of chocolate. No, <laughs> no, I was I never was a fan of chocolate really um, until I I tried some homegrown Australian cacao that wasn't filled with milk and sugar, and um, it's really it's a beautiful um, it's a beautiful product when you when you can taste it at its raw elements and really understand the flavors that are in the chocolate beans. So you can really tell the difference between you know from one crop of uh, pollinators to another by the beans they make. <laughs> I guess you can. Um, that, there's some good science in that. <laughs> Stacy, you too? You I fa- love chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what's interesting is, you know, it's, it's the old Richard Feynman line. Uh, if I can appreciate something by knowing more how it's made than just the beauty or the taste of it, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a better appreciation for, for knowing that. Would you agree with, with uh, Samantha and Stacy? Knowing how the pollination works makes you appreciate chocolate more. I think so. I think one of the most amazing things is that most people don't like midges. We're all, you know, we all don't like sandflies. We don't like midges. And then when you realize that we wouldn't have chocolate without them um, because we'd have no pollination services or very limited pollination services, I think um, you deserve, uh, you develop an appreciation for these small little flies and the huge role that they have um, in our societies. So we, Likewise. Yeah, so we don't want, so we don't want these midges to go away. Right. We want them to stay. And can- we definitely want midges to stay. <laughs> Is there any way we can encourage them to, to you know, how do, you, how do you attract them to your cacao plant? 
Yeah, there's a lot of um, research now just getting underway um, addressing those sort of questions. Surprisingly, not many people have studied uh, re research on midges um, previously. Uh, there's some really good authors that have documented midges and their behaviour and their role in cocoa pollination, but there seems to be a lot of scepticism on who the pollinators are, how, how efficient they are at conducting pollination services, and what are their populations like in the wild. And that's just because they're such a small fly very hard to study and not many people like doing what I do getting out there and spending you know hours on end in very humid hot environments with mosquitoes and sandflies mm. um, and so now there's a lot of uh, research up and coming looking at who the pollinators are identifying what they're attracted to how can we make more of them can we breed them in the lab and release them and manage them like other pollinators and things like that well we thank you for being such a midge uh, geek uh, thank you both for taking time to be with us today Stacey Felpott a professor in agroecology, agro University of California, Santa Cruz. Samantha J. Forbes is a PhD candidate out there in Cairns, Australia. We're going to take a break and talk about an immune system, new drug that may kill tumors in mice, maybe in people. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. It's pretty clear by now that the immune system can fight cancer, and researchers are heavily invested in the search for a way to boost the body's own cancer-fighting properties. Some of the immunotherapy approaches, well, uh, when they've been tested, they have met with some amount of success, but they also have their downsides. They're time-consuming, or they trigger serious autoimmune side effects. But now researchers at Stanford have discovered a treatment that's not only quick, but also doesn't send the body's immune system into overdrive, at least in laboratory tests in mice. Dr. Ron Levy is professor of medicine and director of the lymphoma program at Stanford University. Dr. Levy, welcome to Science Friday. Thank you for having me on the program. I always enjoy your program, Ira. Thank you. You're welcome. So tell us about what, what does this treatment do to tumors in mice? What are you giving them, and how, does, how, does the tumor, how do the tumors react? Yes. Well, as you just said, uh, we're now coming to appreciate that the immune system can fight cancer. It, it generally is appreciated. It can fight the invaders from the outside, the bacteria and viruses that cause illness. But now we know that it can fight cancer, the invader, from the inside of the body. Um, so what we've done is to uh, engineer a way to get the immune system revved up just against the cancer and not against the rest of the body. We've injected uh, stimulants of the immune system directly into the tumor itself in one place in the body. And those immune cells that are there trying to do their job are now woken up and stimulated and fight the cancer not only there, but they travel around and seek and destroy cancer all over the body. Wow. So, so they go into the bloodstream and find the same cancer that you're treating or all cancers that might be there? Well, actually, uh, they find the same cancer that we're treating, and we've determined that by putting two different cancers into the body and um, stimulate those cells, and they go and fight the same cancer but not an unrelated cancer. So they're very specific in what they're recognizing about the uh, cancer that we've triggered them against. Mm -hmm. And so this doesn't, this is only working for, for tumors, right? Not for leukemia or other kinds of cancers that are not solid tumors. Well, actually, we've used a number of different kinds of cancers in the mice, uh, leukemias and lymphomas, uh, melanomas, um, breast cancer, and a variety of other kinds of cancers. So this 
this is a strategy that could go uh, for cancers across the board. Well, people are going to say, why can't I have this tomorrow? Yes. Well, that's a good question. As you know, mice are not people. And there have been a lot of things that have worked in mice that have not worked in people. So we're proceeding slowly. We're uh, starting a clinical trial just in lymphoma patients, low-grade lymphoma, the kind that grows slowly, gives us time to make observations. And also, uh, lymphoma is the cancer of the immune system. So uh, most of our um, mouse results are in that kind of uh, cancer, the lymphoma. So we're starting with patients with lymphoma, and we're uh, going slowly, establishing that it's safe first. And uh, having established that, we're looking for good effects to happen against their cancers. So what is it about your technique that uh, works so much better than other techniques that have failed? Yes. Well, we screened uh, in the mouse uh, experiments, we screened many different candidate immune stimulants and many combinations of them. And we came up with a particular combination that works really well in the mice. And this is a, a two different uh, drugs, one that triggers the uh, macrophages, uh, the uh, engulfing cells in and around the cancers, and then another one that triggers the T cells, uh, the cells that can me remember what they're supposed to target. And but these two drugs work very go well together. In fact, they're even synergistic, even better than uh, any additive uh, effects of the two. And they, they work really well, and, and, and so far that's the best combination mm. we've found. Would, would you use this most as, let's say, if it did work in people? Would it be something for post-surgery, or could you just give it as in terms of the primary, sur the primary treatment? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, we need a place to inject, and so we need to know where the cancer is in the body or be able to uh, reach it with a needle so we can inject our stimulants there. But um, it could be for a situation where the cancer has come back and we know where it is, or it could even be for a situation before the tumor is removed from the body where we know where we're going to remove it from and we know where that place is. So it could be uh, administered right then and there before the mm. primary surgery, so-called neoadjuvant therapy. Hmm. So, so the reason the autoimmune reaction does not kick in here and the body attacks itself, as in so many other cases, is because you have just basically by trial and error or design figured out the right combination. We, we figured out a good combination, but we're also using very low amounts of these stimulants, so low that they don't uh, stimulate uh, generally throughout the body, just in the place we inject them. And so by using very low amounts and particular combination, we can avoid, we think we can avoid the, the autoimmune mm. problems that have happened from generally taking the brakes off the immune system so, throughout the body. So, so once you wake up the immune system, it goes ahead and basically does its thing? Yes. The, the immune cells travel throughout the body and uh, go everywhere, actually, even into the brain. And we've even been able to uh, eliminate the tumor when it's in the brain. One of the uh, really important parts of our study, since the mice that we usually work on get their tumors artificially, we inject those tumors and let them grow and then treat them. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of work has been done in that way. We were able to actually treat a naturally arising tumor, a breast cancer, that happens because a certain strain of mice 
has a gene which makes them get breast cancer. All the mice in this uh, strain get breast cancer in all their uh, memory glands. They have 10 different memory glands, and they all come down with cancer. So Edith Segev Barfi, the scientist working on this project, was able to perform our, our vaccination with these stimulants on the very first cancer that arises in these mice. And by triggering that immune uh, response, she was able to present, prevent all the other cancers that occur in, throughout the body in all the other mammary glands. Wow. It sounds too good to be true. It might be too good to be true. Uh, we'll not know until we try it in people, and we have to go slowly and first establish that it's safe. Wow. I want to emphasize once again that it's uh, this first uh, foray into people is just for lymphoma, patients with lymphoma, uh, and the slow-growing kind called low-grade lymphoma. Hmm. Well, this is quite interesting. I want to thank you, Dr. Levy, for taking time to be with us. And would you keep in touch on how you're progressing? Thank you very much. Now, let us know how this is you know, progressing as you go ahead. Okay. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Ron Levy, professor of medicine and director of the lymphoma program at Stanford University. You know the story of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, those little pet turtles who, after stepping into a mysterious radioactive goo, became New York City crime fighters? Well, there is a real-life version of that, an army of mutant female marbled crayfish. I'm not making this up. They are taking over the waters across the world. Now, we can't confirm if these crayfish are fighting crime or teenagers, but they did arise from a strange aquarium accident where they were released into the wild. Scientists are baffled by how this has all happened. I see a movie here. A group of researchers sequenced the gene of the marbled crayfish to try to get a better understanding, and their findings were published this week in the journal Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. And my guest is one of the authors on that study, Wolfgang Stein, professor of neurophysiology, Illinois State University in Normal and Crayfish Genome Research. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, thank you very much for having me. What a great show so far. <laughs> thank you. Well, you're part of it. And you're, you have a great story to tell. Give us a little background, the origin of how the species of crayfish came to be. Yeah, it's actually quite interesting. Like you said, we sequenced the genome of this puzzle genetic species, uh, the marbled crayfish. Um, and they reproduce uh, asexually, basically. Um, we, we don't really know exactly how it happened. But at the time, um, two slough crayfish, the, those are crayfish that live in uh, Georgia and Florida, um, a couple of them mated and something went wrong and one of the daughters of, of these animals inherited an additional set of chromosomes and that daughter then could no longer reproduce normally but instead was able to generate life offspring without any males and this is this is quite quite interesting because that happened like 25 30 years ago so it's really only species where we can actually account for when the species started. So this is a new species that really has only been in existence for like 30 years or so. And in, in those 30 years, it has been multiplying around the world? Yes, it's, it's, it's crazy because um, we, we've been able to track those animals back to that one animal. And so all the, um, um, the crayfish that we have in existence now f of that species stem from that one accident, that one animal that, you know, um, inherited those uh, additional sets of chromosomes. And so by now they have spread um, all over the planet. We find you know, stable populations in Japan, uh, in Europe, in many countries, in Madagascar. Uh, and you can buy them in the U.S. as well, in Petrate. There are no stable populations in the wild so far. But actually, I wouldn't be surprised to find them. Oh, so they're not living in the waters. They're living in people's aquariums. 
they're living in people's aquariums or wherever you put them and that's actually how they travel um, with pet trade and people you know you, you get one of these animals and they reproduce within like three months you have 200 offsprings and uh, you know people get tired of them and the worst thing that they can do is they put them in a lake next to their house and you know a year later you have thousands of these animals in the lake in the lake yes do they start attacking things in the lake clean you know uh, not that we are aware of, but they are outcompeting the local crayfish species. And so eventually this will be a problem for conservation of the local species. Um, and they spread really, really fast. And this was part of the study as well. Uh, in Madagascar, uh, we tracked essentially since 2007 uh, how much they spread. And just to give you an idea, um, when, th when they were first discovered in Madagascar in 2007, they occupied a space of like half the size of Rhode Island. And by 2017, that's the size of Ohio now. Wow. I'm just trying to soak that in. And Yeah, it's, it's about a hundredfold increase in, like, area that they, that they live in in 10 years. How do you know if you have one? Um, well, you c the easy way is actually you take it, you put it in a tank, and you wait a couple of months, and you'll have offspring. If there's no other <laughs> animal in there, you can be sure that you have one. Um, they have a certain... Um, like when you look at them, the coloring, uh, that's why it's called marble crayfish. So um, that said, they are not very easy to differentiate from other oh. um, species out there. Um, no, again, no, the, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Go. No, no, this is just, I'm just soaking this in. I, I know there's something called parthenogenesis, where yes. animals reproduce asexually. Yes. Is this is what's going on here? Yes, that's exactly what's going on. Um, the um, parthenogenesis, like you said, is, uh, is just an expression for um, asexual reproduction. And there are other species that do that. Um, so the interesting thing about this particular species is that we can now track it as this happens. We know, you know, 30 years ago, this spe species came about, and now we can track how the genome of this animal actually changes. Wow. Because for most of the species that um, reproduce asexually, we know they're uh, genetically diverse. Uh, this hasn't happened to these animals yet, so um, hmm. we are a bit baffled by this, actually. I can tell. I, I, I know you call your lab the crab lab, yes. where you study all sorts of crustaceans. Uh, but you're all you're you're a neurophysiologist. What are you trying to learn about this? And let me just l let you answer on F as I give the ID. This is Science Friday from PRI Public Radio International. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm a neuroscientist, as you say, and my interest is in how drugs and medications affect the brain. And so it's well known that people respond quite differently to medication, but it's really not clear why this is the case. And so the underlying assumption is always that this is differences in genetics. Um, and we now have the chance to test this because the genetics in these animals is really the same. It's identical. And so we can, you know test how diverse the brain actually is if you're genetically hmm. identical. Now, you, I know you have a, you, you have marbled crayfish in your lab. Do you, do you keep them under lock and key? I mean, how do you... Yes. <laughs> yes, we indeed do. We make sure that they don't get out. Uh, we don't want to cause an infestation in the local uh, lakes here. Um, so, yes, we have separate tanks that we... Uh, yeah. pay well attention to, I yeah, guess. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of movies from the 1950s now where somebody from Hollywood's going to call you any minute. You know, they're a good source of protein, so uh, I guess one way of uh, getting rid of them would be to, you know, eat them. So <laughs> that would be a way. Have you, have you, how do they taste? I, I know you must have tried it. But. No, I have not tried them. I have, I, you know, I have tried the crabs that we work with, but I have not tried the crayfish. But I suppose they would taste similar to other crayfish. Now, some people call them crawfish in different parts of the Yes. Country. 
southern parts usually, I guess. Yeah. Uh, uh, this, this, this is amazing. So what have you learned about their neurology? I mean, their neurophysiology, are they different from other crustaceans or crawfish? Um, they are, in terms of uh, the neurons that they have, are very similar to other crustaceans, in particular to crabs and other crayfish. Um, what we've seen so far is that they're really less diverse. So if you go from one animal to the next animal, it seems like they are more identical, which corresponds to the ideas that we have. And so theoretically, they should be more susceptible mm. to, to interference. Like if, they give, if I give them a certain drug or so, they should respond all the same. Hmm. You know, as an old Aquarist myself, I used to have a lot of Ta fish tanks, uh -huh. uh, you know, the, the aquarium to me says, I'm going to go out and get one of these and put it in the tank and watch. Yep. <laughs> uh, you know, in some areas of the world, they are banned now from pet trade. In most parts of Europe, they are banned. Uh, in some states in the U.S., they are banned. I think in Illinois, you can still buy them. Um, I don't know about New York. <laughs> Um, but but you're not encouraging anybody to do no. this. No, I would not do that. And, you know, you, if you do that, make sure that um, they are not getting out. Don't flush them down your toilet. You know, don't put them in a lake uh, next door. It would really be a problem for cons conservation. Yeah. But, but there's another part to this that uh, kind of fits also um, the theme of your, of your um, today's show, um, which is our collaborators in Germany at the German Cancer Research Center, they're interested in tracking tumors in that population because um, for the same reasons actually that we work with these animals, because if they're all clones, we can understand, you know, that's, that opens a lot of doors for understanding how tumors come around in a population and they spread across populations. So. What a great idea. Yeah, it's, it's really a neat species to work with and we're all excited to have it. <laughs> So, you, so nature did this accidentally, and now you can make use of it. Yes. Actually, since you mentioned nature uh, did this, we are actually not sure whether it happened in a tank in you know, someone's aquarium at home or whether it happened in, uh, in the wild. We do know that the, the father and the mother were not closely related, so um, they might have come from, you know, Whoa. I don't know, different lakes or so. We That's don't know if any radioactivity was involved. <laughs> <laughs> I, I highly doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dr. Stein, this is quite fascinating. Don't go out and get the, the crayfish. Exactly. Anybody. Wolfgang Stein, professor of neurophysiology at Illinois State University. Thank you for a very informative discussion. Thank you very much. We're going to take a break, and uh, when we come back, do you know the difference between a poisonous and a venomous animal. Stick around. We have a quiz. We've had a quiz online on uh, tweet on Twitter. We're going to have a quiz. I'm going to take the quiz right there on our website at sciencefriday.com. You can take the quiz yourself right there. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Ah, uh, yes. When you think of Indiana Jones, one of the images that surely comes to mind is Harrison Ford fending off a thousand poisonous snakes as he makes his way through the giant snake pit in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember? Wait a minute. Did I just say poisonous? Yeah, I think I did, but I should have said venomous. You know, we often use the two terms interchangeably, but they actually mean 
very different things. And here to set us straight on the difference between poisonous and venomous creatures. And we're going to play a little game with us, as well as Mandy Halford, Associate Professor of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Hunter College and Research Associate at the American Museum of Natural History. Good to see you again. Hi, Ira. So nice to be back. So you're a venom researcher. Do you cringe when people say a creature is poisonous when they're actually venomous? <laughs> I cringe a little bit, but I give them a little leeway because I know that they, they don't know better. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the lexicon has sort of conditioned us to always say poisonous, poisonous, poisonous. All right, give us, but there give, is a difference. Give us the difference. What's the, the difference? difference, and I think it's pretty straightforward, but of course I've been studying them. The difference is if an animal is venomous, and I'll do it in terms of bites. So if an animal is venomous, it bites into you. Right, right? right. If an animal is poisonous, you have to bite into it, right? And so that's an easy, wow, I'm I like it. to I'm... say, bite or bitten, but that might be hmm. the easy way to reference that's them. That's good. So, so venomous creatures have to have sort of a weapon right, of some exactly. kind. Right, exactly. So the scientific definition would be if you're venomous, it means that you have a delivery mechanism, you have a, a gland of some sort that makes the venom, and then if you're poisonous, you sort of sequester your toxins from outside. Hmm. You don't have a way of delivering them necessarily, and you don't have a special gland. Um, and also, with the venom, you need to pierce the skin and make a wound. With a poison, you don't have to pierce the skin. You can eat it, ingest it, or touch it. Uh, okay, I'm getting the idea now, but I know that sometimes even scientists can't tell. Right. Right? Researchers have been going back and forth over whether a creature called the bearded fireworm. Yes. <laughs> is it venomous? Is it poisonous? Discuss. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. So it's either venomous or poisonous. So for a long time, these fireworms have been hurting people. They sting is very painful. They can cause local mm -hmm. necrosis sometimes. And so it, what wasn't clear is whether or not they're venomous or poisonous because we couldn't determine if they had all those components. So did they have something that they can use as a weapon to pierce and make a wound? Check. Yes, they do. It's uh, it's a keta. We all know the keta is there. Do they have a special gland that produces their venom? No check. No one can find the gland. It's very unclear hmm. if it has a gland. We've done all kinds of microscopy studies, but no one has been able to locate it. Uh, do they produce their venom endogenously, or do they get it from eating something from their diet? Question again. Not sure. So when we took on this project, we wanted to figure out how many of these questions could we tick off at that relate to proving that it's either venomous or proving that it's poisonous. And so we studied these three different species. One of them actually they use in a cocktail in Haitian voodoo um, mixtures to make people walk around like zombies. So it was really cool. So we got, Did you try that one yourself? No, 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 no. Okay, that's okay. an experiment we don't do with the grad students. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of this was led by my grad student, Ida Verdes, who's now in, um, in, in uh, Jamaica because <laughs> she just defended. So she's having a nice holiday. That's good. But basically, in the study, what we did, we took these three different species. We ground them up, we sequenced them, and then from the sequence, we looked for what kinds of cocktails do they have in their venom arsenal. And so things that are venomous tend to have a lot of proteins and peptides. Things that are poisonous tend to have a lot of alkaloids like caffeine, nicotine, tetrodotoxin. And so what we found was our, the, the species of fireworms that we grounded up and sequenced all tend to have things that related to known venom proteins and peptides. So we sort of tipped the scale hmm. by saying, okay, we, don't, we still don't know if there's a special gland. We do know that there is a machinery for delivering some venom. And now it seems like the venom arsenal or the toxin arsenal that they produce is endogenous because we took it out from sequencing 
sequencing their RNA. And it's similar to all the other known venom types of proteins and peptides that you find in animals like snakes and spiders and scorpions. So we're like, okay, I think we're going to put our foot on the scale and say that these are venomous creatures because we seem to have things that line up. Quacks like a duck, looks Quacks like a like duck. Quacks like a duck, looks like a duck. Haven't found the gland, but does everything else. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anything else you have to do with that? Or are you pretty convinced? As you, well, you're we, never going to find the gland, but that's... Well, we might find the gland. We just yeah. need to do different types of microscopy studies. We also have to confirm by taking out the secretion and finding it using mass spec. We did it just sequencing. Right. So there are other kinds of experiments that we can do to prove that it's there. Uh-huh. Look at more species, do more dissections, right. all those kinds of things. All right. We're going to get to our venom uh, poison quiz in a second. But yes. before we do, I want to, you know, because I, I love murder mysteries and things like that. And I have to ask you this question. I've okay. been wondering for years. <laughs> can you, because they, they do this in TV and movies, can you inoculate yourself, inoculate yourself to a venom uh, the way you can to a poison by taking a little bit of it at a time, you know? Not uh, really. Can, you can do that with a poison? You can do it a little bit with a poison. But, not but you can't do it with a venom because, and this is another way to tell if something's venomous or poisonous, but also an experiment that you might not want to do. (laughs) In glass A, we have a compound, and you swallow it. If you die, it's probably a poisonous compound. Problem solved. In glass B, we have some substance, toxin, and you swallow it, and you live. If you live, it's venomous, because the venoms mostly break down in our gut, because they're made up of peptides and proteins similar to Mm. every amino acids that make up the things like your skin and your hair and all of that. So most venoms can break down in the gut. If they make it out of the gut, you'll die. But if, for the most part, you'll you can't you can't kill someone by feeding them venom. But you could possibly kill them by feeding poison. And you can mm. you know sort of inoculate yourself a little bit. A little dose. Bit. It's all dose dependent, right? Yeah, I get it. <laughs> you get I get it. it. <laughs> all right. All right. Now that we know how to identify a venomous animal from a poisonous one, we thought it would be fun to play a little game on the air called venomous, poisonous. Or both. 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 Okay. And then if you want to play at home, you can check it out on our website at sciencefriday.com slash quiz, where we have the choices up to you. Now, we also played this game yesterday on Twitter, and I'll let you know how they voted, the Twitterdom voted during (laughs) the game. So, Mandy, you have a list of six animals there. That I do. And I'm going to make a guess for each one. So give me your first animal. Our first animal is called a flower urchin, and I'm not sure if everyone's seen one. If you think of, like, your shower poof, they live in um, uh, in coral reefs. They settle on the bottom on the sand, and it's this poofy, brightly colored thing. I'm gonna guess that it's uh, that it's venomous. And our Twitter Twitterdom said 38 percent of the people took our poll said said both. So let's see who was right. Ooh, that Ooh, rattlesnake yeah. <laughs> means it was venomous. It was venomous. Rattlesnake means venomous. Yes, it, it's very, very, very venomous. It's actually one of the most deadliest venoms you can really? have on the planet. Also one of the oldest venoms that we have from these animals. And what's nice is that they they don't use a spine like other urchins. They use sort of this claw that opens up and it has a movable jaw. And it looks like an open flower. And then it has sensory organs. When things get near it, snap shut, injects the venom. Gotcha. <laughs> I don't want to step on and go, go near that one. No, you don't want to go near. Don't go near. Okay, okay next one, man. You give us your next, next one. one. Next one is the pufferfish. 
and you guys know this, it's like the inflated ego symbol. <laughs> you know, it starts very small, gets very big. That's the puffer fish. Well, I, know a lot of, I know a lot of sushi places yeah. for, try to use puffer fish. So I know that sort of, it's got to be poisonous because they tell you if you have this, on, you, it could be lights out if you're right, eating exactly. it. Right, exactly. So this this is exactly so puffer 50, fish. 59% of you guys on Twitter guessed it was poisonous and... It's poison. I tell you, it's poison. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Ten points for knowing where that sound clip came from. <laughs> so it is. It is poison. It, it is, is poisonous. poisonous. These are pufferfish. Uh, they produce tetrodotoxin, which is very lethal. TTX, if you're into acronyms. And if you eat the pufferfish without dissecting out the organs that have sequestered the TTX, it will kill you. So they get their poisonous toxins from eating different bacteria in the sea. They don't produce them endogenously. No. Yeah. Oh, they, the bacteria in the sea are poisonous, and yeah. they just eat them, and that's the a, bacteria in wow. the sea have. And they yes. can live in the animal and the mm -hmm. fish without destroying. Without destroying it. Yeah. Wow. But the minute you bite into it, Ira, watch out. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not biting into that one. Okay, uh, Mandy, next one up. The next one is the Asian tiger keelback snake. Oh, okay. Now. Uh, Fifty-four percent of Twitter users said that was that was venomous. So I'm going to say snake. It's got to be venomous. Let's see what the, the right answer is. It's poison. I tell you, it's poison. That was poison. Well, it's actually both. Oh, it's both. <laughs> so the the snake has both. Um, it can bite into you like a snake, right? It has glands. It produces the toxins, but it gets its toxins from eating different toads. And then oh. if you touch it, so let's say you can yeah. wriggle away and you get away from its fangs, but if you hold its neck. It secretes this very cardiotoxic ooze that would send you into, like, right, shock, right? right? So it gets you both ways. It can bite you, so bitten, right? right? Or, you know, if you touch it, it can also cause this poisonous reaction. That's why our yeah. little noise had both the rattle. And the little story. And the little so. boy from... Do you remember? Drawing a blank. George, and It's a Wonderful Life. Oh! And, and he was, in as a kid, in the... Pharmacy. You have to go see the movie. It's I great. Have to see the one movie. of my favorites. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, have another one for it. All right. The next up is the fired belly newt. The fire belly newt. Now, I had a newt as a kid. They're hard to keep track of. I mm -hmm. mean, I think I lost mine when I was five. I still haven't found it. Oh. It's. Did Probably. you have any siblings that disappeared also? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Not that I know that okay. you mentioned it. Okay. <laughs> is it. Is it venomous? Is it poisonous or both? Uh, I'm going to say a newt. I'm going to... I figure you have to touch it, so I'm going to say that since you have to touch it, it's got a skin, it's going to be poisonous. And let's see what our Twitter people, Twitter people says, 61% said yes, they said it was poisonous, and the answer is? It's poison, I tell you, it's poison. Correct. It's yeah. poison, it's poison. And so newts are actually very interesting. There's an urban legend about um, campers who were out camping, and they all died. And so when the, um, the, the forest ranger came to their campsite, he saw these people all dead, couldn't figure out what it was. Forensic people came in and they looked into, they were boiling water for coffee and there was a newt inside of the <sighs> water. And so what they found out was the TTX, because that's the toxin that's inside right. of the newt, was in the water. They made their coffee. They all died. So not a happy camper morning for <sighs> them, right? But what's nice about newts is newts and snakes are in this evolutionary arm race, venomous versus poisonous. Ooh. So snakes eat newts. 
Newts build a stronger TTX toxin to try to fend off the snake. Snake makes a bigger, stronger venom to try to eat more newts. So you're going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth in this locked-in chemical warfare. So newts are actually one of the most lethal things. The reason some people can keep them as pets is if you can touch them without having a wound on your your hand, then you won't get absorbed, the the poison, and it won't kill you. But if you have any kind of a nix or scratches, which is why I asked if any of your siblings disappeared... (laughs) (laughs) If they touched them while they had nicks or scratches in their hands, it would not be such a a good thing. You shouldn't handle them too much. And you shouldn't have them as pets, really. Really? No. And then these days, in those days, we had little turtles, too, and (laughs) they don't have those anymore. This is Science Friday from PRI Public Radio International. Enjoying my conversation with Manny Holford, who is Associate Professor of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Hunter and a researcher at the American Museum of Natural History. In case you're just joining us, with, I'm taking a quiz about poisonous... Well, it could either be poisonous or it could be venomous or whatever. Okay, you've got another one. I have another one. Next one is the platypus. And these, if you have The platypus? The Australian platypus? The Australian platypus. They're very cute, adorable, hairy, with a beak that's kissable. All of those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. A platypus. Um, I'm going to... I can't imagine touching... Maybe it's a trick question. Maybe expect me to be bitten. Let's say it's... It's poisonous because I'm, I'm going to pl- say poisonous. And our, our Twitter people, our Twitter them says, you at home said 57% of you said venomous. And the real answer is it is venomous. It is venomous. Your viewers are very smart. <laughs> it is venomous. So these cute, adorable creatures, they have venom and they have a spur on the hind leg. But they only use, so venom can be used for defense or predation. These guys use their um, venom only in uh, sexual reproduction dances. <laughs> so they have a sex warfare going on. And only the males produce the venom wow. and use the spur. And it's sort of cyclic. So in the mating season, yeah. the males will express their venom and they fight each other to decide who gets to mate with the female. So, you know, women are prizes, as we all are. And so the men are fighting each, o- each other to figure out who's going to be the lucky winner to get to wow. reproduce with the female. Wow. So they don't really use their venom for um, predation or defense. It's more of a sexual it's a selection. love ritual. Yeah. <laughs> let's, go on, let's, let's go on to our last one you have. The last one is the soil centipede. Crawling like a centipede. Crawling like <laughs> a centipede. Uh, okay, I would guess a centipede. It's got to have a stinger in it someplace, so I'm going to say I'm going to say uh, uh, venomous. And let's see, Twitter, 41% of Twitter said both. Survey says... It's poison. I tell you, it's poison. Both. It's both. It's both. It's both. Yes. These are cool creatures. I love them. Wow. Because they have claws on the top of their head, right? Which they can bite into you, as you're right. They have venom. They have a claw, a delivery mechanism. But on their bellies, they exude hydrogen cyanide. You know hydrogen cyanide, right? Yeah. Pretty lethal gas. It's like a chemical agent. Can kill you. Kind of smells like, you know... Dirty sneakers or burnt, burnt, bitter almond or something like that. So they're doing both things. So they can get you from the top and the bottom. Is yeah. the one I saw a picture of? It attacked a mouse. There was that, a centipede. That, that was the centipede. It but that bit was the, the mouse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they can take down creatures like fifteen times their body size. Venom. Welcome to the world of venom. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> venom is definitely the world of the crazy, the very powerful, 
often the very potent. And yeah. it works through the what system? The nervous system? Is yes, it for the most part, yeah. The one that you saw works right. through the nervous system. Yeah. Wow, this this is fascinating, Mandy. Yeah, I love it. This it, is why I'm a venom researcher. Wow, <laughs> you've got a great job. I love my job. You, I love you, it a whole it lot. must be a dangerous lab. <laughs> <laughs> We're a fun lab. We play games all the time. So long as you keep your heads behind you and not walking around there. <laughs> Mandy Hulford, Associate Professor of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Hunter College and Research Associate at the American Museum of Natural History. Thank you for taking time to come back and we'll have you back on another topic. Yes, definitely. I wanted to say just quickly that we have games that we make, killersnails.com, where we talk about venomous snails. And the first game is called Assassins of the Sea. Because that's what your, your specialty is, snails. That's right? what my specialty is, Assassins snails. of the Sea. We're, killersnails.com, is that Killersnails.com, right? that's yeah, right. I'm going Thank right to that much. after the show. <laughs> BJ Lederman composed our theme music, and of course we're on all kinds of uh, social community places and, uh, you know, have a great what what more can I say after that? So have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Plato in New York.